When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Omniverse. Hey, this is Kat. And Jess. You know, Mother She Wrote is free to listen to, but it's not free to make. So please, consider supporting our work on Patreon. You'll get early ad-free episodes of this show and all the storytelling podcasts we create. Head to patreon.com forward slash omniverse media to chip in and join our community of world-saving wonderkind. Oh, and heads up, this episode contains light discussion of religious and personal trauma. Please use your best judgment when listening and take care of yourself. Love you. You cast your onyx hook into the ocean of consciousness and slide beyond into another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of dreams. A dimension of love. You're crossing over into a realm of insightful interviews expanding the themes and discussions of the Mother series. You've just been transported through a dimensional slip. Welcome to Dimensional Slip, intermittent interludes in Mother She Wrote's journey where we speak with guests from a multitude of backgrounds and delve deeper into the themes, media, and fandom that make up the tapestry of the Earthbound experience. I'm falling through a time zone. I'm stepping in a slide zone. I'm your moody blue blue hostess, Kat Blackard, and with me as always is... Let's do the Dimensional Slip again! Let's do the Dimensional Slip... Wait a second. Kat? What the heck is a dimensional slip? Well, Jess, it's just a jump to the left. And uh, also, scattered through the Mother Encyclopedia, are these fascinating short articles called dimensional slips. They're named after a psi ability that Ninten has, which we've mentioned before. It's called 4D slip in Earthbound Beginnings, but the ability is called dimensional slip in Japan. The dimensional slip articles in the encyclopedia are all written by different people from a wide range of backgrounds. Authors, film directors, a religious studies professor, Shigeru Miyamoto wrote a dimensional slip. And there's even an article from, quote, Japan's foremost figure implementing proof-based parapsychology research and psi power development. Wow, that's just enough to drive you and say, yay, yay, yay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is so weird and awesome. These articles are all super fascinating, and you can read the translations over on where else? Kinesis Mother Encyclopedia page. With us for our dimensional debut is a voice you've just met, but somehow you get the feeling they've been with you the whole time. It's Sarah Ray Warner. Sarah plays Anna on Mother She Wrote, and Sarah and Kat are also both actors in the sci-fi audio drama Moonbase Theta Out, as well as the Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program's upcoming season. It's true. But Sarah's possibly best known as the writer and lead actor of their own sci-fi audio drama, Girl in Space, one of the most beloved all-ages audio dramas of the podcast era. Sarah also hosts a podcast called Right Now with Sarah Ray Werner, that's right with a W, and a newsletter called Dear Creators. Both are amazing resources for writers with tips, tricks, and importantly, inspiration and encouragement to write. I mentioned that in particular because one of Sarah's newsletters inadvertently provoked my interpretation of Anna before we even considered casting them in Mother, she wrote. 
In this episode, we're exploring Sarah and Anna's shared life experiences and discuss something very important to the fabric of Mother, all ages science fiction, which is, as I understand it, how you and Sarah became friends. Yep, that's what being friends is about, it turns out. (laughs) Closing out this episode, we're including the first episode of Girl in Space. So, if you're missing our regularly scheduled audio drama, stay tuned. But first, it's the Mother's Day Times. First, let's kick things off with a community update. Here's reminding you that Kat and I will be in London, England, the weekend of September 9th. So if you live in or around the area and would like to meet up, drop us a line. And I'll be in Glasgow, Scotland the remainder of that month. And the same goes for meeting up there. Write in at DearMotherSheWrote at gmail.com or talk to us on our Discord server linked at MotherSheWrote.earth. There is a Glasgow meetup in the works. We've got more Dimensional Slip interviews coming, but with travel and getting the remainder of the season completed... And just life in general, I'm I'm still partly living out of boxes after the move. So we might need to shift to putting out one episode a month during this mid-season quote-unquote break. I recall someone saying something about not thinking it's good to work too hard. (laughs) Yeah. Well, uh, for updates on releases, we'll keep you posted via these Mother's Day time segments. Uh, But for up-to-the-minute updates, there's always our Discord, but... There's also the dumpster fire of social media. Such fun. We're phasing out our presence on the app formerly known as Twitter, so if you're following us on there, or aren't but would like to follow us somewhere, you can find Mother She Wrote, all one word, on Tumblr and Blue Sky. There's links on MotherSheWrote.Earth. I've got a fun update that's not Mother She Wrote related, but it is pizza related. Ooh. Aside from the Mother Trilogy, one of my media passions is the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And to celebrate the release of the new film Mutant Mayhem, I've appeared as a guest on an episode of the podcast My Big Score with Christopher Dole. It's a podcast where artists discuss the film scores that inspire them. And in the latest episode, Chris and I are talking about John Dupree's 1990 score to the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles film. That episode is out now. Just search for My Big Score. Well, cowabunga. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Now it's time to reach into the mailbag and read some listener letters with awesome insights. Saga wrote in and gave us some context to the old man who lost his dentures. You may remember, I didn't realize he was the same person as the old sage that the game's NPCs were talking about because they said he lived on a mountain. But to me, it just looked like a hill. Well, Saga has clarified that when they say the word mountain... Yama in Japanese can actually be used to describe any slight bump on the ground. They say it, quote, often makes translations very awkward and frustrates anyone who's been near actual mountains, or maybe just me. My least favorite example of this phenomenon is Mount Mikasa, which is a prominent pile of dirt in Hibiya Park in central Tokyo and reaches a breathtaking nine meters in altitude. (laughs) Amazing. Well, by that metric, the old man definitely lives on a mountain. Thanks for clearing that up, Saga. In terms of mother facts, Biozilla recently shared the previously obscure fact that Shigesato Itoi based Lloyd's appearance on the author Ryotaro Shiba, who's one of Japan's best-loved writers of all time. He's known for historical novels, many of which have been adapted into films, as well as historical and cultural essays on Japan and its relationship to the rest of the world. What that has to do with Lloyd, I don't know, but... Shiba does have a certain kind of Andy Warhol, but more Lloyd kind of look to him. His haircut, his glasses. Yeah, you're right. You can plainly see it as soon as you look at the photo of him. It's hard to convey someone's essence, I guess, in a little 8-bit sprite, but once you point it out, you can't not see it. Yeah, especially when you look at the figurines, which is something 
I don't think we've ever really mentioned on the show, but we ought to have. The promotional images from Mother 1 and 2 use a lot of photographs of figurines of the characters and enemies, these beautiful little sculptures. So if you look at the figurine of Lloyd, there's a striking and very noticeable resemblance between him and Ryotaro Shiba. Random Rants wrote in and shared some notes on Ninten's name that we hadn't mentioned on the show before. There's two pieces of non-canonical but officially licensed media where he has a name other than Ninten. In the mother novelization, he's named Ken. And there's a really detailed pen and paper choose-your-own-adventure book, but really it's more of a game called Mother Invasion from the Unknown, where Ninten is called Douglas or Doug Halloway. Anna's last name is Bruton, Lloyd's last name is Schneider, they're all distant cousins, and the story explicitly takes place in Maine. Ah, Stephen King's Dominion. Yes, home to spooky towns like Jerusalem's Lot, which is mentioned explicitly in the book. Both of the mother novels and the game book have been translated by Nyasu Nekaban and are freely available, so you can read the novel and play the pen and paper game for yourself. But if you'd like an in-depth overview instead, Thane Gaming has your back. Just search for the Dark Aspects of Mother series on YouTube, and you too can experience the juiciest parts of the very different novels and the game book vicariously. Finally, Emma wrote in and shared that just like Jess and I, they and their girlfriend Polly love to share video games with each other. Emma says, since she showed me the Mother series and played through all of it with me, I've become such a big fan of these strange, poignant, and beautiful games. I've been so happy to find and listen to your podcast and to learn so much more about the background to Itoi's bizarre and wonderful ideas. I can't wait for you two to get stuck into the big emotional moments of each game. But hey, no crying till the end. Thanks, Emma. Thanks, Polly. And thank you to Disgruntled Seabass, Thidio, Hellygix, and Matthias Whitney for your wonderful and heartwarming reviews of Mother She Wrote on Apple Podcasts and Podchaser. Reviewing the show and telling people in your lives about it is a huge help. As is supporting us on Patreon. I don't know which of you new patrons for sure are here for Mother She Wrote, but I've got my suspicions. Thanks so much to everyone, yes, even you, for listening and making this show possible. We'll see you next time! Sarah, welcome to the show. Hello. The first question that we have for you, the most important thing. We need to know, what are your favorite pizza toppings? (laughs) Oh, I appreciate this so much. My favorite pizza toppings, I have to tell you, I don't know if this is why. And I don't know how many people like really like to go into the psychology of what their favorite pizza toppings are. But in this case, I'm going to do it. So my favorite pizza toppings are cheese with pepperoni. And this is because we grew up super poor. And extra toppings cost money. And I didn't actually have a pizza with multiple toppings on it until I was in college. Tim, who is now my partner, would always order these pizzas with like, what? Pepperoni and (laughs) sauce and mushrooms and peppers and onions? Like, how? What? What is this? It's perverse. It's it's decadent. It's it's lovely. Exactly, (laughs) right? that's beside the point. (laughs) And it's like, you know, and I I love that. And, and, you know, since then I've had pizzas of all kinds, but, you know. You're a traditionalist. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But like not in a gross sense, hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> There's a reason why a cheese and pepperoni is like the default pizza anywhere that you it go. It is. Yeah. It's, um, have you played the game Pizza Tower? It's on my wish <sighs> okay, list. Good. Okay, good. Okay. And yeah. that's probably a whole nother conversation for another day. But I was like, yeah, you know, the standard pizza, it's cheese and pepperoni. And maybe that's because it's easy to draw. 
maybe that's because it is a classic deliciousness. And yeah, there's just so many, there's so many reasons. But um, yeah, pepperoni is what I'm going to vote for. And Tim always makes fun of me for it. He's like, that's so basic. He's like, don't you want like some adventure on your pizza? Don't you want extra taste and texture and also probably nutrients? And, (laughs) you know, my answer to that is when I order pizza, I'm not ordering pizza to have a taste adventure. I'm ordering it because I need to feel some kind of comfort or nostalgia or something like that. And that's what pepperoni pizza tastes like to me. Wow. I love that you took what would be the most stock (laughs) possible answer and took us on an emotional journey. And I think that really sets the pace for literally this whole conversation. Thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to. Sarah, We came together as people because of our careers in podcasting, but we came together as friends (gasps) because we both realized that we had the same favorite book. That is true. We did. That book is A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Leangle, which is, for some people, a required reading in elementary school. I had to read it in both fifth grade and then uh, when I moved to new school in sixth grade. Oh, wow. You got a double dose of wow. it. Wow. And Sarah just held up two copies of the book. Well, and I have three and I can't find, I had the really small one with the centaur and the evil red eyes and everything on the cover. I don't mm. know if you're familiar with that one. It was pretty standard for a while. I feel like I read A Wrinkle in Time in grade school, but I honestly can't remember anything about it. So can't. I'm probably going to borrow your copy of it at some point and give it a read, but uh, you'll have to forgive me and my ignorance about the story because it's been like a long time since I read it. Yeah. Uh, Wrinkle in Time came out in 1962. We'll talk a little bit more about it later. That is all to sort of say that it is important. Mm -hmm. And the reason that we're going to circle around to it, the reason that it's in this Earthbound discussion is because this extremely formative piece of young adult science fiction whether it is directly referenced by the Mother series or indirectly is a part of the sort of pop culture fabric Mm -hmm. that allows for a story like Mother to exist. It is a foundation upon which many things are based. So whether or not Shigesato Itoi had actually read this book, it still casts enough of a shadow that by virtue of a lot of pop culture osmosis, it has a place within the ecosystem of of how art is made. And gosh darn it, there are a lot of comparisons between these two stories. But there's the question of how did Sarah find herself in this particular adaptation of the story? And it's not just because we're friends and we've worked together a whole bunch. I mean, that's probably part of it, but it's part of it. But pray continue. (laughs) Sarah, about the time I sat down to start writing uh, what became episode seven of Mother She Wrote, where Anna's introduced, you wrote a newsletter article called Being Brave Actually Kind of Sucks. I really enjoyed the discourse Mm -hmm. of that newsletter and that led to my first drafts as I was finding Anna's voice. You and I got to talking, like you messaged me out of the blue probably. And uh, and I was like, oh, hey, I was actually just kind of riffing off of something that you'd written. And we got to bantering about how things had gone of late. And then as we were talking, I realized, oh, wait, Sarah is the child of a minister, preacher, I don't pastor, recall the yeah. pastor. Yeah. yeah. And is also a voice actor and also loves A Wrinkle in Time. And there is so much A Wrinkle in Time in not just Mother, but in hindsight, I've seen my interpretation of the story of Mother. Maybe Sarah's the perfect person to voice Anna. Thank you. It's just too many coincidences to be an accident. Right. I don't say no to that kind of serendipity. <laughs> <laughs> 
Neither do I. So I would love to talk a little bit about the discussion of being brave kind of sucks. Obviously, everyone at this point, if they've heard episode seven, has heard how that discourse sort of turned into my separate discourse in Mother She Wrote, where Anna puzzles out kind of the idea of bravery as confidence, Mm -hmm. the ability to know who you are in the face of something scary, a belief in yourself that supersedes a threat of pain or obliteration. And that's not explicitly what you were talking about in that newsletter. So, Sarah, what's your relationship with bravery? It's one of those things where, you know, I feel like bravery is something that gets bandied about a lot. Um, It's become a thing that we say to each other, like, oh, that was so brave of you, etc. But my own particular relationship with bravery and why I decided uh, to write that particular newsletter was that I was in a discussion uh, with a friend who has a not only a chronic illness, but it turns out something bordering on terminal. And we were talking about going to these medical appointments and we were talking about, you know, existing in a world that maybe doesn't see and doesn't understand what you're going through. I was trying to not say anything trite or cliche. And the only thing that I really felt that was true that I could say to this person was, I really admire your bravery in going through this, and wow, being brave really sucks. It sucks. And that's what got me started thinking about this newsletter. I've never thought of myself as a brave person. I liked the definition that you just gave. In that context, bravery is about identity. Bravery is acknowledging your identity or owning your identity, coming into yourself, and... There are different ways that we can, you know, act out that kind of bravery. One is the association of not only accepting yourself and knowing yourself, but like liking yourself, which is a really sticky and tricky topic to talk about because, you know, I am at times prone to episodes of self-loathing that can last for various periods. The other thing is it's always associated with very active terms and active bravery. And I know that that's an easy way to think about it. Like, oh, you jumped in front of that car to save the puppy. That was very brave of you. But bravery does require something. It's not entirely passive, and I don't think it can be passive if it is bravery. Being brave could require a catalyst for you to act. You can either choose to react in a way that is sort of safe and is what is expected of you and is following the rules or having the confidence in yourself to be able to react to it in a way that feels true to you. I mean, bravery is in a lot of ways a question of what is your response to situations that could be considered fearful? Mm. So then we have to analyze fear. Sarah, in your article, you said overcoming fear feels less like overcoming and more like just getting through the worst of something without giving up, Mm -hmm. just surviving something horrible I feel a lot less like Luke Skywalker than I do Laurie Strode at the end of Halloween. Mm, Yes. For the purposes of Mother She Wrote or analyzing any situation where we're discussing the ways that children are growing up through trauma, Mm. like these kids who are, you know, on this big adventure knowing that there's something out there that only they can do and feeling so small and yet somehow also a little bit big in the face of all of it. In a way, bravery is an existential status quo for a person. Mm. 
how do you respond to fear? And if you have a sense of self or a sense of some kind of like crystallized vision of who you are and where you're going, it's easier to stand up to that. Yes. You know, I I think I probably said somewhere in the article that there's this sort of saying that bravery is feeling the fear and doing it anyway. And the relationship between bravery and fear seems so intertwined. But I think it's also interesting to look at what fear actually does for us. It's, you know, sometimes an overdeveloped sense, but it is generally a, a sense that we've developed to protect ourselves. Like, I'm afraid of getting eaten by a bear, so I don't poke the bear. I'm afraid of getting hit by a car, so I don't run out into traffic without looking both ways first. And I'm really interested in how we use bravery to respond to slash overcome fear And what does that mean for us and for the health of ourselves and our identity? So Anna using her powers, I feel like that ended up being a very positive and good and healthy thing for her. But, you know, using your bravery to overcome fear, was her fear protecting her from anything that she'll later regret? Or was that fear not rooted in truth to begin with? Are those false fears that have been implanted in us by people who are looking to control us, et cetera? Yeah. In Anna's case, a lot of her baggage comes from the ways that her parents were concerned about her powers and how she internalized that and the different ways that she kind of like repressed aspects of herself. She talks about how her parents would restrict her use of her powers. I mean, she doesn't elaborate on it a whole lot, but she basically says... It's like having visions and talking to animals is all well and good. But by the end of episode seven, she's really playing with some firepower here that could do some damage. And so her personal growth is having the confidence that she's doing the right thing with that, even though she's been told her entire life to repress that when push comes to shove and she has to use it to save her friends. She is willing to step up and do that. Do you think if she wouldn't have had, if somebody else's life wasn't at stake, would she have ever used it? It's a great question and probably not because Anna, from what little we get of her from the encyclopedia, the younger kids at Sunday school call her little mother because she is this kind of maternal figure while also still being a child. So there's a clear spotlight that she exhibits a great degree of control and always has control over her powers, however subconscious, control over being the perfect daughter to a major figure in the township. That kind of inner tightrope walk that she might not even realize is doing or is causing her stress, like that's the sort of thing that she has to release. And if it wasn't for her having that kind of release, she may not have had the wherewithal to solve And this is what I was hopefully going for with the script is she might not have actually sat down at that piano and played a duet with a ghost if she hadn't had that moment of overcoming prior. What a resonant experience that is too. As you were, as you were speaking of that, I was, you know, thinking of my own childhood and those experiences and what is it that finally brings us into ourselves? What finally kickstarts our bravery and our becoming one with our identity, wherever that comes from. I think it maybe also is having support from your friends and having that confidence, having people around you who are telling you that they trust you and that they believe in you. 
I think that's so important. I was just so thinking of my own childhood, going to church, sitting in church when I was little, I was the oldest of four kids and I was always the one who was like shepherding them and being the little mother to my sisters and my brother. And it really makes you think of how even that can form its own type of trauma. And it was things that I didn't even unpack until later in life, but that kids go through and deal with. And without the support, without a community encouraging you to have that growth and to confront your trauma and to be yourself, which I didn't really have, you know, I'm almost 40 and I'm only just now starting to deal with some of these issues, which is why the character of Anna related, I related so strongly to her was, how old is she? 12? 12. 12. (laughs) She's 12 and she's having these realizations that, you know, I'm turning 40 and I am just now getting to that place. So she's got, she's got things cut out for her. I like to think that fighting possessed wildlife and aliens will kind of accelerate mm, that. Mm, fair. I feel like, you know, a lot, a lot of life <laughs> changes comes from personal crisis and, you know, being like, oh, I, I have to stop lying to myself now mm. or I literally cannot go on if I don't confront this internal thing about me because something terrible has happened and only that allows for you to grow. Mm. As you've been talking, I've been thinking a lot about the word truth and just what that means, especially in that context. And so growing up, you know, your truths are, you are a good child because it is true that good children do this and this and this, and you are a benefit to your family. And that means this and this and this, and this is true. And there are certain truths within the church, like we believe this and we believe this and we believe this. And I see a lot of parallels with Anna and the truths or the truths that are told to her are truths about what she's capable of and what her powers actually do and the effect that they can have on the world. I'm wondering if being brave is really an understanding of what is actually like capital T true. And I feel like depending on how trusting you are and what you're taught, the truth that you're taught, you should do this, you must do this, you are this. A lot of us don't even know or think to question that. And that's why I appreciate the crisis in Anna's story, giving her the impetus to begin to question that instead of having, you know, having it happen over 40 years of her life very slowly. (laughs) (laughs) It's so interesting to think about Even the term mother. In this case, I think that mother comes with a very strong sense of responsibility, like above anything else. Because, of course, mothers also are associated with love and nurture and care. But really, what we're looking at when you're asked to keep an eye on your siblings, when you are asked to keep your powers in check, that responsibility is kind of what is being asked of you most. And not wanting to let people down, not wanting to look like a failure. That all gets mixed up in there too. But at the same time, you're dealing with this as a child. (laughs) Of course, I'm going to say now that I can look back on some of these things. Like there are some things that like we should not expect children to have to do, like mediate parental arguments and take actual physical responsible care of siblings 
and just do a whole bunch of things that really, ideally, there would be an adult in their life who would take care of these things so that the child can actually be a child. And that that was a lot of my experience. And, you know, I've grown into a very responsible person today. Um, and that has been a benefit. I know how to take care of children, even though I don't have any of my own, which that may be related. So, you know, it's maybe good for growth of character and it's made me more self-reliant. I'm wondering with Anna what she's going to face down the road, having to have been an adult, you know, for how long she's been doing this. And what does that mean? What does that mean for a child? Is that part of her trauma? Is it the stem of her trauma? I have so many questions. Something else, you know, about Anna as well is she does have these psychic abilities that lets her sort of read the minds of other people, what they're up to, where they are, what their experiences are, and, you know, things like that. Mm. So that probably gives her a leg up when it comes to being a caretaker, you know, really interacting with anybody out right. in the world. That just may have sealed her fate into that because when you have that, like, you have to act on it. You have that knowledge. Yeah. But the other thing I think with Anna is did she choose that responsibility or how much of that responsibility did she choose? And what is the responsibility of putting herself over the choices that other people have made for her? Yeah, we'll just have to see the different ways that she's confronted by these larger existential problems for her as she steps out into this and as different responsibilities maybe attempt to adhere themselves to her or pull on her heartstrings in a way that she is not used to having to say no to. Mm. Mm. Do you think that Anna feels a sense of responsibility towards people who are in need? I mean, yes. clearly when she sits oh. down at the <laughs> piano and has to overcome that, like she is trying to help make a connection with a spiritual entity for no reason that she has to. Oh, can I talk about but, this? Please yes. do. Sarah, you did a TED talk I um, did. called When You Can't Help Everyone, <laughs> uh, which I think like something in the orbit of that is kind of where this is headed right it, now. It absolutely. And that's exactly, oh my gosh, that's exactly what I was thinking. So I have so many thoughts now about, you know, organized religion in the church. And the, the thing that I want to share is that me personally, I think that if you are in a church, speaking for the church and taught by the church, you are taught a path of love and kindness and selflessness. Now, I know there's a lot of people who call themselves Christians who are out there waving around AK-47s, but for me, a lot of growing up in the church was learning, and Anna probably learned this too, that others come before yourself. And, you know, we can take a look at that as what does it mean to be a servant leader? What does it mean to dedicate your life to someone or something else? And, you know, this is really glorified in like, you know, knighthood and all of that stuff, which we won't go into right now. But the deep well, there's yeah, <laughs> there's also there's also this sense of, you know, now that I'm older and I'm taking a critical look at some of these things, who is expected to serve in the church? You know, ideally, it's everyone. Often, at least what I saw growing up, a lot of that fell to people who were assigned female at birth. It seemed like it would be an easy thing for people to take advantage of women or any other person who has, quote unquote, a certain place to keep that person in that certain place. Because there's so many different ways to look at 
serving others and helping others and being kind. You can do it from a place of generosity. You can do it from a place of fear. I had a coworker once who was very religious. I don't know what kind of church she belonged to. I think it was maybe a little on on the fringes of things, but you know, if I don't do this, then I am going to hell. And so I feel like a lot of what she did was very fear-based. Whereas if you, you know, follow the teachings of the figure of Jesus, it's you're doing this out of love. You're doing it out of empathy and kindness because you understand suffering and you want other people to feel better. That's not what it's all about. But at the end of the day, if you're if you're serving other people, I want it to be from a place of I love to help other people, not I am obligated to help other people or I'm terrified of what will happen if I don't help other people. And it's just a really, really thin line that I don't see it getting dissected really anywhere. I just see corporations and places of employment and even sports teams using the term servant leader when they want to make somebody feel better about being benched or they want to use that person, but only in specific circumstances. Like I worked in marketing for over a decade and I always wanted to be a manager. I wanted to be a VP. I wanted to like grow my career, you know, as you do when you're a career focused young person and was always told that like, no, you're not a good fit for management. Really what we see you doing is leading from behind, you know, being a servant leader which meant that I was doing all the work of a leader, but not getting paid for it. There's so much wrapped up in what it means to serve others and what the, what the reasons are behind why you're doing it. And I think it's especially interesting when it becomes something so ingrained in your personality, like I believe it is in Anna, she can't help it. Like she sees someone in pain her empathy is so strong that pierces her heart and she has to act. I'm not going to say it's a it's a reflexive action or a reflex or that she's not choosing to do it, but she doesn't even question her choice to do it, if that makes sense. Because she's brave. Because she's brave, right? Yes, because she's brave and because she sees someone in need. And what a beautiful gift to be able to respond to people in that way. Yeah. So a Wrinkle in Time, it's the story of a group of three neurodivergent children whisked away to other planets to solve the problem of a sort of, let's call it a cloud of encroaching evil that is a sort of abstract embodiment of the darkness in the hearts of living beings. Yeah, we know the story of Earthbound, but what about A Wrinkle in Time? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a very, very simple explanation, but at its heart, yeah, the stories are very similar. I mean, a psychic little boy is like one of the main characters, and the other kids, they don't have, you know, pyrokinesis, but they have a certain sort of intuition, which is the way it's described is beautifully rendered in a way that's very before its time Mm. as some people who are just like very neurodivergent, have ADHD, have autism. These are extremely realistic depictions in a time where they are all of them rendered outsiders. Some of them are masking Mm -hmm. and, Mm. and then feel incredible relief when they don't have to anymore. Wow. When was this book published? 1962. Wow. Seriously? 1962. 
Seriously. It spent uh, several years not getting published, actually, because it was too different, because it had a female protagonist, which had basically never happened in young reader science fantasy literature. And also, the topics it discusses, even mathematically speaking, are so heavy, Mm -hmm. it's kind of a surprise that it was ever conceived of as a kid's book, but it, it is important that young people read this book. The concept of a tesseract, that is the titular wrinkle in time, folding two points in time together... A very literal dimensional slip, I might add. Topical. That that is at the heart of this book, and they go to great lengths to explain what was at the time a highly theoretical, like mathematical problem. Mm -hmm. At this point in time, these kinds of discussions were not very existent in even adult science fiction. Mm -hmm. And this book is directly responsible for these kinds of science fiction topics finding their way into larger pop culture. Mm -hmm. When we look at the books that we know for a fact have been a basis for the Mother series, we're looking at books like The Neverending Story, Mm -hmm. which was first published in 1979. We're looking at Peter Straub and Stephen King's The Talisman, which is published in the mid-80s. This story, A Wrinkle in Time, is what all of these other things are built on. Like I said before, whether Shigesato Itoi or even these other authors mm-hmm. interfaced with it, they were still absorbing it because it was a huge hit immediately. So I know a lot about the book and I love the book. And that's why I know a lot about the book. What I don't know is anything surrounding the release of the book. So even hearing that this was shelved for a while is like that blows my mind entirely. So was the book pretty much like a runaway success when it was first published? And how did the publishers react to this thing that they thought nobody wanted uh, really exploding? I'm going to talk from what little I know on the history of it. Uh, Madeline Lee Engel got 20 plus rejections and eventually was able to get it published by kind of like backdooring through a friend of a friend that didn't usually publish YA. But when it came out the very next year, it got a Newbery Award. Mm, and it deserves so, it. The inciting incident of A Wrinkle in Time is... Mm-hmm. Megan Charles Wallace's father disappears. And that's been the case for over a year. I forget how long it is specifically, but everyone assumes that he's dead, mm-hmm. but the government won't say what the hell happened. And then one day, someone presumed to be a homeless person shows up and starts talking about a tesseract. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The story also has a certain degree of overlap in terms of the way that it looks at the world. Mm-hmm. Um, Madeline Lee Angle has an incredible sense of scale mm. in terms of the philosophy of how the universe is looked at. This is especially shown in the follow-up book, A Wind in the Door. Yes. One could call it a kind of theosophical mindset, theosophy being, it's a longer discussion. We talk much more about it in my other show, The Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program, where it is historically relevant, but it's a kind of combination of philosophy and theology that assumes that all religions are at least in some part true or that there's some kind of like divine undercurrent to all of them. The reason I was able to read this book in school in general was like I attended Christian schools when I was younger and there are Christian themes in this. So forward thinking teachers could put this really radical science fiction book in their criteria because people were like, oh, I see that there's Christian themes in this. Well, this must be okay. Mm. Whereas there's actually a lot of Christians who think that this book is like as evil as anything else they put on their banned book lists. So it walks in this very strange place Mm -hmm. of having a lot of love forward Christian philosophy in it at the same time as also like naming Buddhism in different parts. It's just talking with such love and reverence about the world in a way that makes so many things seem more possible. 
Has A Wrinkle in Time inspired you or affected or um, has it had an impact on your own writing? Extremely, yes. I think that a lot of people when talking about their favorite book or something that has been a lifelong inspiration for them, will talk about that book as though it is like a friend or an extension even of themselves or their personality, or maybe even a a source for where part of their personality came from. And I'm definitely, definitely in that camp. Thinking about Meg in her attic room. So Meg is, is the main character. Again, female neurodivergence. And I think I read this at a time, I want to say I read it in the early 90s. And I didn't know what neurodivergence was. I didn't know anything about gender politics. All I knew is that there was some finally a character who like felt real to me and did things that I would do and wanted things that I would want. And it was very liberating in a way that gave me permission to write about myself not as a traditional, neurotypical, stereotypical female type person, but really gave me the freedom or the permission, whatever you want to call it, to create a character who actually felt real. And this was, you know, during this time I was reading, I was reading Nancy Drew and like, who is fantastic. You know, she can make a bomb out of a high heel shoe and like solve things with lipstick, but it was still, that was still very neurotypical and very traditional female stereotype. And this just really centered Meg first and foremost as a person with a capital P. And that was really meaningful to me. Yeah. Going back and reading these books intermittently as I have throughout the years, every time I pick it up, there'll usually be a gulf of of some significant time in between them. Mm -hmm. And then I'll be like, whoa, that's in there. Mm -hmm. I'm only just now thinking about what that means. Like the Mm -hmm. most recent time that I read it, I was marveling at how like the different ways that I've unpacked myself as a neurodivergent person, Mm -hmm. the naturalistic way that they are depicted is so true, Mm -hmm. so honest. And I, I think, you know, the book influenced me, but also in some ways, I think the connection that I had with the book is that it felt like a friend from the start. Mm -hmm. It's the same way that kind of like queer people or neurodivergent people end up inadvertently clustering together Mm -hmm. in in society. Mm -hmm. And then they're like, oh, wow, surprise, we're all gay, weird. And this book has the same relationship, I feel. Mm -hmm. And that made it feel safe to me. That made it feel like I was understood saying like, hey, these outcasts and weirdos are making their own. Again, a new term at the time, found family. I didn't even hear that term until, I don't know, I was in my 20s or 30s, but that's exactly what they're doing. And now, since we're talking about the influence of this, Sarah, the work you're best known for is an all-ages science fiction, Girl in Space. Hmm. We've talked about a lot of themes that materialized over the course of you writing Girl in Space, like within that body of work. How has A Wrinkle in Time informed Girl in Space and how is Girl in Space reflective of your views on young people in existential Mm -hmm. situations and and so forth, the stuff we've been talking about here? Mm. So for those of you who haven't heard it, Girl in Space is the story of a girl in space, a person living aboard an abandoned space station that's slowly falling apart. And the sort of premise of the whole show is this character, her name is X, you find out eventually X is alone and suddenly a light starts coming toward her. And really nobody really knows she's out here. Nobody's supposed to know she's out here. So who is this coming toward her and why? And I mean, it's interesting. Like I did not actually think 
about its relationship. Like, wow, like I, this is, it's kind of a retelling of A Wrinkle in Time when you really look at it. But um, I think what I took away from A Wrinkle in Time and either consciously or unconsciously planted into Girl in Space was having a safe space. Meg's attic, it's like, always seemed so cozy to me. And she had her own space. And for me, I had to share a room with my two sisters. And then I had roommates through college. And then I didn't actually ever have my own space until I was in my 20s. And I didn't know what that was. And I just coveted it. I just wanted it so much. I even asked my parents, like, hey, could I like set up a bedroom in the attic? And they were like, no. (laughs) So... (laughs) No, Um, but the book, the book, (laughs) I I know, but they didn't, you know, they didn't get it. They didn't understand it. But uh, X living in the glass house, it's very much me recreating that cozy space where you understand things and are understood and where you can express yourself and care about the things that you care about. And like literally there's in this case, literally no one is around to judge you for it. I think really Meg's activity and maybe to an extent to X's activity and girl in space and by activity, I mean the things that they choose to do in being brave is to initially, just like at the end of Halloween, survive this intrusion and survive this existential threat. And then what they have to do to be brave is get to know themselves and develop themselves to the point where they're able to enter the conversation and start to make actual functional choices. So, Sarah, after being cast as Anna, you started playing Mm. uh, Earthbound. I did. I was like, I should probably figure out what this is about. I was curious what that experience has been like for you, because I've I've seen that you're playing it. We exchanged a couple messages here and there, but I don't actually know uh, how you're finding it mm. or what it's like. Mm. I know that this this game in particular can be like kind of a pain. So what do you think? Yeah, um, I have lots of thoughts here. First of all, I'd never even heard of this game until you invited me to act in the show. And so that was a completely new experience. I had never played a video game like Pokemon or anything that I feel like this is maybe stylistically inspiring. I have played Undertale, which is maybe like in my mind related in a way. Undertale is what's now called a mother-like. Really? It's its its own genre? Yeah. A very newly coined term to Mm. encapsulate a phenomenon from that started before Undertale, but has an increasing footprint in the especially indie games industry mm, boy um, why more of that please oh, uh yeah okay. well um there's a sale on steam right now for mother like games is it really there is well when we get off this car <laughs> um i do want to say when i first started playing the game i played the wrong game <laughs> <laughs> you played earthbound yes and i was like i found it hooray and i started playing it and i was like man, this is nothing like the audio drama at all. (laughs) It finally occurred to me after a while. And Kat, I don't remember. I want to say you were the one who was like, you're playing the wrong game. Was it you who alerted me to this? No, because I knew you were playing the wrong game, but I didn't (laughs) think you were playing the wrong game on purpose. I was like, oh, cool. Sarah reached for Earthbound. That makes sense. That's a more fun game as games go. And you, you got at least a Tucson. I did. I got uh, to Tucson and then I was like, oh, I'm playing the wrong game. And then I started the other one, which actually has Anna in it. Um, and I was like, oh, OK, this is what I should have probably started at. It was 
so unusual in its storytelling because when you start the earlier game, your lamp gets possessed Mm -hmm. and, and and all that stuff. And then when you start the second game, it's this like weird nonlinear thing. It's just, it goes against what you're taught storytelling wise in that something happens, you go outside to investigate, you can't investigate and you go home and sleep. And it's like, what is this storytelling? And like, that was blowing my mind. I was like, this cannot be possible. So then you get up the next day and you're investigating this crash site. And it was just so unlike anything else I have ever played before. And I've, I've played maybe a reasonable number of video games, you know, including Undertale. And this still retained a freshness. It's, it was just interesting. Like that first game is so ugly. Like everything is like flesh colored <laughs> and the kids look like little Charlie Brown peanuts characters. Legally distinct from Charlie Brown. Yes. Yeah, similar, but legally distinct <laughs> from Charlie Brown, yeah. Snoopy just peanuts enough. characters. Just enough. Yes. I did enjoy the design and kind of the smoothness of the second game, but both offered such bizarre and challenging experiences that I think that especially the bizarreness was really ahead of its time. I feel like you get a lot of like lull random stuff in today's media. Like everything is self-aware and breaking a fourth wall and all of that stuff. But I really feel like Earthbound did it first. Like if that title was launched today, it would be successful. It would be fresh. It would be new. And it's, it's, it's just fascinating to me the amount of creativity that went into that to make it so fundamentally different and unique. And I kept taking screenshots and like screeching with delight. So that's how you know that I like a game. So <laughs> Next up, you're going to hear the first episode of Girl in Space. But before we say goodbye to us and say hello to X, Sarah, where can people find you? And uh, what would you like them to know as we uh, slip through this particular Tesseract? You can find me out on the internet. I think first and foremost at my website, which sort of serves as a portal to everything that I'm working on, you can find that at sarahwerner.com where you can listen to my podcasts and more importantly, sign up for my newsletter. And like, that's kind of how you can uh, hear what I'm working on and read things about how bravery sucks. So yes, please, please do that. (laughs) Well then, we'll have links to where you can go to all those places and do all those things on this episode's page. Sarah, thank you so much for being here on this first dimensional slip. Thank you for having me. It is such an honor to be here with you talking about so many of the things that I love and that have formed me as a person. So I'm just very excited to be here. I'm also excited for what's coming up next, which is, hey, if you like Earthbound, if you like A Wrinkle in Time, chances are you might like Girl in Space. It deals with a lot of what we've been talking about theme-wise and I think introduces you to some fun and compelling characters. So I hope you enjoy the ride. You think sometimes that you're all alone. But wherever you are, whoever you are, you're wrong. It's Girl in Space.
You said, on the last day I ever saw you, not to worry, that I'd see you again. Part of me wants to forgive you for lying to me. I mean, you couldn't have known. But part of me, to be honest, part of me is still kind of bitter, even after all these years. Not because you left, but because you left me alone. Wow. You'd think I would know better than to go through my old diaries. Nothing there but teenage heartache and angst, and a lot of really terrible poetry. (laughs) Though, they're a lot more interesting than my current diaries. Speaking of which... According to the dash, it is day 10 mark 303, hour 0837. Whatever that means. I mean... (sighs) I guess I get the meaning of time, insofar as is possible for a human mind. And there's a fairly distinct linear progression to my life. I just haven't ever witnessed the apparatus by which they're measured. Days, hours, when there's no rising sun or planetary rotation, these measurements feel kind of arbitrary. I mean, outside of the info here on the dash, they don't mean anything. It's always just me, out here, on the Cavatica, alone. Despite how that sounds, please note that I am super not bitter about it. In fact, I really don't mind being alone. Turns out I like the quiet. It helps me think, and I get a ton of work done. Speaking of which, I think you'd be proud of me. I finally got that old stereo microscope working, and I'm going to use it today to take a better look at those weird little insects that are attempting a hostile takeover of my potato plants. Oh, and I found something while I was going through some of Mom's old stuff. It's, it's weird. I've never seen anything like it before. It's about the size of a button, and, well, <laughs> I think it actually is a button. Not like the kind you would sew onto a jacket, more like the kind you press to open a door or commit a command. But it's not attached to anything, and I don't think it ever was intended to be. So, I'm going to take it apart, and I figured, hey, might as well do so using the stereo microscope. I know, I know. Buttons and microscopes and potato-destroying insects, all before lunch... What can I say? I am a sucker for cheap thrills. Honestly, I would climb mountains or lead revolutions if there were any mountains to climb or revolutions to lead out here. But there aren't. There aren't any tombs to excavate or counterfeiting rings to bust or even any decent movies to see. Well, okay, that was me being bitter. And to be fair, there is one movie that came preloaded on the dash. It's called Jurassic Park, and I can't believe I didn't discover it until after you were gone because you would have totally loved it. It's all about the reintroduction of an extinct species that, in my opinion, was clearly dominant in the first place. I like it because it's full of heroic action and science, and because it reminds me that even the humans back on Earth have difficulty re-engineering gene expression in certain species. I used to watch it as a treat once every dozen days or so, but 
The Kvatic has been having some issues lately. Well, okay, more issues. And the movie playback is kind of stilted and jerky and stalls sometimes, which, to be honest, reintroduces a dash of the unexpected into a movie I can otherwise recite by heart. Nothing like a peaceful jungle landscape that pans the same scene 20 times before suddenly erupting into Dr. Sadler screaming bloody murder. And if you were here right now, you would ignore everything I just said about the movie and hone in on the word issues. And yeah, I suppose I should log those here too for posterity or whatever. So, the good news is that the Cavatica still works. Technically. Like, it has structural integrity, for the most part. And so far I haven't been sucked out into the icy black expanse of space to die. The bad news is that the ship can't actually move. Which is mainly due to its engines being dead. But, before you panic, I'm alive and I had plenty of heat and water and oxygen and the life support reserves to last while I worked out an alternative. It was actually a really interesting project, rerouting life support through the hydroponic systems into the glass house. I had to shut down all but three of the pods, but they're the three most integral to my work, so that's a win. Let's just hope I don't need to use the infirmary. Like, ever. Basically, the only ship-related thing that still functions properly is Charlotte, and I'm not even sure anymore that she's tied to the ship. I mean, she should be, and logically, she has to be, because there is literally nothing else that she could be tied to. I certainly didn't wire her into the glasshouse system, and yet she remains operational. This might sound vaguely insane, but part of me suspects that she saved up some sort of energy reserve for herself. Which, honestly, wouldn't surprise me. For an AI that's supposed to be dedicated to serving and enhancing human life, she is incredibly selfish. All right. Time to get back to work. Whatever time might actually be. I'll be taking radiation measurements from Ra, checking out those insects under the stereo microscope, and taking apart that button thing I found. Ooh, maybe my cheese will be coagulated in time for lunch. So, okay, I'm curious. I have the stereo microscope all set up, and for the first time I noticed a name etched into the side of the arm. Your name. It's faint, but it's there. My question is, why is it there? I mean, I don't really see there being an imminent danger of theft aboard a ship with a crew of three and no means of escape. Or is carving one's name into one's possessions a thing that people do? Is it a habit, a compulsion, a simple act of boredom, or even defiance? I'm... I know I'm way overthinking this, it's just... It just threw me for a loop, and I can't say I'm entirely sure why. I mean, I guess that names have power, you know, we name things for a reason. To clarify and identify them, to call and claim them, to bestow and take away power. Maybe that's what really happens to us after we die. Maybe our names are our ghosts, infused with the sum total of our accomplishments and unrealized dreams. 
Maybe you're haunting me through this stereo microscope. Or maybe that cheese wasn't quite ready to eat after all. At least I have the distinct honor of being haunted by Dr. Arvin Singh. (laughs) Way to be king of the nerds by including a proper title in your graffiti, Dad. Speaking of the microscope, I found a couple of things that might be of interest with a capital O and a capital I. First, the insects that are waging their tiny, cruel war against my defenseless potatoes. I can positively say that I have never seen anything like them before. I think that normally this might not sound weird. Like, there's almost a million unique documented species of insect, and there's no way I could ever memorize them all. However, I have been aboard the Kavatica for more than 9,000 days, studying every living thing on the ship in isolation, in the massive vacuum of space. So if I haven't seen a particular species of insect before, then, well, let's just say it's significant. Current hypotheses include some kind of rapid onset mutation or, more improbably, recent introduction. I've isolated a few of them in a terrarium for further study along with cuttings from a variety of other plant species. I don't know whether I prefer they devour everything in sight or simply remain hell-bent on destroying my potatoes. Okay, next up, the button. This thing, it's so simple it's kind of hard to describe. It's smooth and flat and round, made of some kind of dense plastic or maybe glass. Uh, There's a slight fingertip size indentation on the top to indicate what you're supposed to do. And when you press it, it clicks. It's oddly satisfying. Anyway. Alright, I am now taking a look at it under the stereo microscope, and... There is a tiny seam all around the side. Let's just see if... Okay, I'm gonna see if I can find a scalpel or something to fit in there. Pardon me. Oh, no, 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 no. Pardon me. Charlotte, I am working. Out you go. Are you attempting to... Repair sensitive technical equipment? No. Go away. It appears you are attempting to... Repair sensitive technical equipment. Would you like my assistance with that? No. No, I would not. Thank you. I am glad you have opted into letting me help you. Repair sensitive technical equipment. Charlotte, no, I'm... I've got this. Just please go away. Remember the incident with the distress beacon. My databanks remember everything. Okay, just stay right there. Okay. Uh, I have a scalpel, which looks like it will fit nicely into the crack. Your attempts to repair sensitive technical equipment would be more successful with my onboard tools. All right, I've got it open. Split right down the middle like a walnut shell. Inside, hmm, just a bunch of wires and circuits. Oh, that's weird. Uh, there's a little burn mark right where... Oh my gosh. Charlotte, back up. 
Yeah, no, I need to use both of the eyepieces on this thing. That's what makes it a stereo microscope. It appears that one of the microprocessors has burned out, burned out, burned out. My onboard tools can easily... Thank you, Charlotte. I can take it from here. What? My onboard tools can easily repair Oh it. my gosh. Fine. Just fix the microprocessor already. If you insist. Thank you. Okay. It's back together now, and it's still... N oh. oh. Uh, that's weird. Uh, it looks like there's a little switch right along... Um, okay. The object has begun to emit a soft and steady blue glow from within. Now let's just see what happens when I push... Oh gosh. Okay. Uh, that was unexpected and terrible. I ran a quick inspection of the three functional pods and the dash core, and nothing was different. Nothing had changed. Nothing was glowing or sparking or unexpectedly functional. Happily, nothing had blown up either. I'm relatively sure I'm still alive. Uh, Charlotte's as normal as she's ever been. I even ran through the opening scene of Jurassic Park, and it was as jerky and stilted as ever. In short, I have no idea what I might have just activated slash done. I have no idea why Mom would have stashed this thing in one of her lockers, why or how it was broken, or why I even felt compelled to fix it. If there were anyone else on board, I might feel embarrassed. But you know what? There is no one else on board, so I can be comfortably and perfectly honest about how I probably shouldn't have tried to fix that button, and how badly it could have gone if it were some sort of weapon or self-destruct device. And hey, you know, while I'm being perfectly honest, I hate zucchini, turnips are the hell spawn of root vegetables, and I am terrified of the fish in the hydroponic tanks. But I eat all of them anyway, because they're nutritious. Okay. Everything is okay. And we even learned a lesson. Don't push buttons if you're not 100% sure what they are. As they say, you know, whoever they are, no harm, no foul. I am going to get back to my calibrations and conveniently forget this ever happened. Dinner tonight was one of the Ancorhynchus micus from the tanks, grilled with lemon and oregano, and quinoa that I tossed with tomatoes and spinach. I was going to have potatoes instead of the quinoa, but decided to forego them until I learned more about those insects. Strawberries and tea for dessert, and then some final radiation tests before bed. You know, while I was eating, I kept thinking about those diaries I found about how I used to feel about being alone, and how I feel about it now. I was bitter then, 
and angry and hopeless and a whole lot of other things. But now, I know they say people don't really change, you know, again, whoever they are, but I think I'm kind of okay with it. I wake up, I eat, do science, eat, do more science, eat some more, and relax before I sleep. Then I rinse and repeat, just like it says on the side of my vat of Caldwell Enterprises shampoo. And between all of the eating and sciencing, I can dance and sing and tinker with broken things and invent new things and watch Jurassic Park or even just stare out into the infinite vastness of space. I think what I'm trying to say is that I don't really mind being alone as much as I think I'm supposed to. Humans are inherently social creatures, but for whatever reason, I am not. No one tells me what to do out here. No one tells me to put on shoes or sit still or wear cosmetics. My work is important and my research is challenging and fascinating. I have clean water and fresh food and access to top-notch scientific equipment. I mean, sometimes I wish I had someone to talk to, but that's what you and Charlotte are for. And the view is fantastic. So why... This is going to sound incredibly ungrateful, but, you know, hey, we're being honest here. If everything in my life is so incredibly amazing, why don't I feel happy? Addendum, uh, day 10, Mark 303, hour 1745. This probably isn't really worth noting, but during my final radiation tests of the day, I saw a blip out in the opposite direction of Ra. It's a bright light with the pinpoint clarity of a star, but obviously it's not a star since it wasn't there yesterday, or even a few hours ago. Also, it's moving. I would say that it's a comet or an asteroid, but at this point, I don't have enough data to make that assumption. And we all know what happens when we assume. For whatever reason, Charlotte's taking this new development with all the grace of a garbage fire. She barged in on her hydraulic arm while I was checking Ra's radiation emissions earlier and started reciting the entire Caldwell Enterprises emergency preparedness manual to me from start to finish. I took that to mean that she thinks the incoming light is a matter of some concern. I told her to be more optimistic, that it might not be coming directly toward us, that it could simply be a mirage, that she technically doesn't have a death to fear, but she just started reciting the manual all over again from the beginning. So I wedged a fallen tree branch up into the hydraulic tracks to block her from exiting the glass house. I don't know. I don't think I'm afraid of death, necessarily. At least not right now. Things live and die in cycles, and I'm not enough of a narcissist to think I'm exempt from the laws of nature. I'm weirdly... I don't know how to describe it. Interested? Excited? I mean, I'm not excited about death, or even really about whatever this approaching thing is. A comet, an asteroid, a projectile, a ship, an event, a fact, a phenomenon... An anomaly? 
I think I'm just intrigued by the idea that there is possibility out there. You know, that space holds things other than the stars and planets and nothingness I've seen all around me every day of my life. In all of its mystery, this thing coming toward the Kavatica signifies everything. Sounds like Charlotte found a way out. I bet she's on her way here right now to tell me that escape pods are at the ready. Escape pods at the ready. Thank you, Charlotte. But I'm pretty sure they're just about as dead and incapable of movement as the Kavatica. You know, it's interesting. The things that happen despite or because of our intentions. Escape pods at the... The feeble control that we have over this massive universe and the thin threads of chance that tie it all together. The Kavatica was never intended to be out here this long. And from what you've told me, the raw initiative was expected to, if not explicitly intended to, fail. Or at least it wasn't intended to be as long-term as it's become, or else they'd have given it better engines and a larger supply of fuel and a bigger crew. You know, an actual chance to return and make a difference. Not that I'm bitter. And yet, despite all of that, here I am. A girl in space, harnessed to one of the universe's most bizarre science fair projects, writing out my thin thread of chance, regardless of whether anyone out there ever intended me to do so. Anomaly gaining speed. What? Anomaly... Gaining speed. Gaining speed. That's weird. Charlotte says the anomaly appears to be gaining speed? I I don't... Hold on. I'm on my way to the galley, where I have the best view of it. Maybe I'll sleep there tonight just to keep an eye on it. For whatever good that'll do. Note to self, create list of measures, countermeasures, and worst case scenarios for eventual approach of disastrous phenomena, unfriendly ship, or malevolent godlike entity. Okay, um, so, day 10 mark 304, hour 0553, uh, radiation levels normal, blah blah blah, all of that good stuff. Okay, the thing moving toward us, it's not a meteor, or an asteroid, or an event, or a malevolent godlike entity, or a ship, or any of those other things I said it might be. Dad, it's an entire fleet. full episode credits to Girl in Space, more episodes and links to their Patreon, head to girlinspacepodcast.com. Mother She Wrote is made possible thanks to the generous support of our Patreon producers, Amber Devereaux, Becky Scott Fairley, Bob Hogan, CB, Joe Tankerciardelli, 
Josh King, McDribble Deluxe, Mjolnir MK86, Patrick Webster, Sean Hutchinson, Sean T. Red, and our Super Deluxe Executive Patreon producers, Big Bad Shadow Man, Marcus Larson, and Jamieson Lalone. You can join the team at patreon.com forward slash omniverse media. And if you think that Mother She Wrote is simply smashing, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And be sure to subscribe via your favorite podcast player. This series is recorded and produced in Orlando, Florida, and Louisville, Kentucky, on lands stolen from their indigenous people. The Tamuqua and Seminole, and Shawnee, Cherokee, Osage, Seneca Iroquois, Miami, Hopewell, and Adena. Acknowledgement of the first peoples of these lands and the lasting repercussions of colonization is just the beginning of the restorative work that is necessary. Through awareness, we can prompt allyship, action, and ultimately, decolonization. For links to aid indigenous efforts and to learn more about the First Nations of the land where you live, visit omniverse.media slash landback. Mother She Wrote is written, produced, and performed by me, Jessica Mudd. And me, Kat Blackard. Our original score is composed and performed by Jess. Special thanks to Kinesu for his invaluable work translating the Mother Encyclopedia. Find a link to his translation, other media we referenced, and full episode transcripts at mothersherote.earth. Mother She Wrote is not affiliated with Nintendo, Shigesato Itoi, or any rights holders of the Mother and Earthbound intellectual properties. Please play the game's official Nintendo releases. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish. Dum Dums and Dice would like to welcome you into the Mythos Mysteries, a live play Pulp Cthulhu podcast where improvisers and comedians venture into dangers beyond their wildest imagining. Our story begins with two erstwhile companions on a long and winding road. They think they are fleeing danger, but greater horror awaits them when they arrive. For they are not just running away from mortal danger, but towards the Mythos Mysteries. Whoever you are, we're not scared of you. You hear a voice from inside that says, Please, help. I'm inside the dresser, help. Now I need you to listen to my very explicit instructions here, Adrian. Okay. Please ready your punching fists. Yeah, they're always ready. Now I'm going <laughs> to... I'm going to open the door. Okay. And we're going to look inside the dresser. What if we don't? Could we not? <laughs> I need you to be brave for me. Okay. You were always very brave. I, okay. Okay. So we're going to open the door and you're going to look in the dresser. And yes. then what? And then if I tell you to. Yeah. We're going to punch it. The dresser? <laughs> <laughs> You said I had to be very, you said explicit. If there is someone in the dresser. I'm punching. We're going to punch him. What if it's a ghost? Well, then we're going to have ourselves a fun time. Like a party? (laughs) Like a birthday party. Okay, so we'll do some dancing and there will be a cake. Hopefully the ghost brought it. Yes. Okay, I can do this. Okay. I'm going to open the door now. (laughs) Okay. I'm going to open the door. You open the door and the dresser is... Back upright, all the drawers are back inside, but now it is next to the window, and the bed is in a different corner. Of course it is. And the blood is pooling on the floor instead of the ceiling. It's dripping up. The Mythos Mysteries. Episodes are available now.